I'm Ayelet Waldman. I'm Paul Waldman. This is Boundary Issues. Welcome to Boundary Issues, the podcast where two siblings solve all the world's problems while blaming each other for their own. All right, Ayelet. Yes. You are an accomplished career woman. <laughs> but lately, you keep sending me pictures of quilts that you are making. So what is going on with the quilts? It's actually so relevant today's discussion. And usually the whole point of this is to pitch you shit, but I'm actually going to be serious for a minute. So on October 7th, for reasons that we'll talk about today, I was, like many people were, completely shocked, horrified, in a state of like confusion and rage and desperation. And for two days, I didn't do anything, but I couldn't sleep. I was Googling. I was watching the videos that I should not have been watching. And then we had this sewing machine and some fabric kicking around. And for no reason I can explain, I walked over to it and I proceeded to spend sometimes as much as 16 hours a day quilting. And it wasn't like I I was still watching Israeli television, but I wasn't like my feelings about it were as intense, but they were somehow manageable. I And I do think it was like a, I mean, I hate to say PTSD because like I'm not one of the people who was having this experience, but in a way it was like that. Um, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, I couldn't, I had like intrusive thoughts and somehow doing this thing with my hands made it manageable. And then it's shifted over to this. It, it's now an obsession. I'm not really doing much else. I'm not really working. <laughs> so yeah, that's what's up with my quilting. That's what it is, dude. So I'm going to ask you a question that has to do with, we're going to talk about our father. So uh, yeah, so this thing, which we'll talk about in a second about how dad absolutely felt like he was part of this historic moment in time. So that's my question for you. I've given you so much grief over the years about, and especially recently about like chronicling the rise of Trump with you just said it was what a million words about Donald Trump. So do you think of yourself as an actor in this moment of history or is the fact that you're a writer just mean you're observing it all? You know, I think this is something that journalists always struggle with because there are things about the job that can make you feel as though you are doing something meaningful. Um, you are around events that happen. You sometimes interview people who are actually doing things or hold power. And now and again, people write you emails and say, oh, that was so great, the thing that you wrote. But you're always gripped by this fear that it's ultimately meaningless, that you're just sort of scribbling on the side of the things that occur. And I don't know that I can point to more than one or two things I've written over the years that I felt like that actually made some kind of a real difference, not just in illuminating things in a way that some people might have found helpful, but actually changed the course of events. So usually not. But you know, there's, there's kind of a larger political thing here too. I think that was, uh, in 2008 especially, that was one of the, the extraordinary things that Barack Obama made his people feel that just by doing something small, like volunteering for his campaign, that they were actors 
in something historic and they were shaping Dude, I events. I am the reason he was president for two there reasons. There you go. I am literally the first person who ever uttered the words Obama 08 at a party. <laughs> and, and he told me to shut up. And we sent out a letter that made everybody vote for him. All right. Let's turn to the topic of today's program. If you're Jewish in America, especially if you're a liberal Jew, you may have been asked this question recently or asked yourself this question. Are you a Zionist? And you may not be sure how to answer it anymore. I think a lot of young people, especially who may have never known an Israeli government that was not right wing, for them, Zionism is an emphatically right wing project. But not only wasn't it always that way, in its roots, Zionism was originally very much of a left wing project. Those of us who grew up learning about Zionism and being inculcated with Zionism as more of a, a liberal project are now feeling a real sense of dislocation. I speak for myself and I think a lot of other people when I say that we don't really know how to answer that question anymore of am I a Zionist and what does it mean to be a Zionist in a world where Israel's government is so far to the right and the prospects for any kind of a left renewal in Israel seems so remote. And so that was the question that we wanted to grapple with in this episode, especially through the story of our father, Leonard Waldman. A lot of the story of Zionism can be seen in his story. That legacy is something we are struggling with as we try to figure out what it means to be a Zionist and whether or not the liberal vision of Zionism has a future. So before I talk about dad, though, I just want to say like that question, are you a Zionist? It's been a really long time since I could answer that question without feeling like kind of a punch in the gut. And not just because people mean different things. Like to some people, are you a Zionist means, do you believe that Jews have a right to be in Israel and that Israel should be a Jewish state? For other people, are you a Zionist means, do you support the conquest, the oppression of the West Bank and Gaza of Palestinians within Israel. And I've been doing, you know, a lot of work with Israel-Palestine in the Palestinian rights movement for a long time. I mean, you know, you're always plugging books. I'm going to plug a book. So Michael and I, my husband and I co-edited a book called Kingdom of Olives and Ash. And we brought a bunch of international writers to the West Bank and Gaza. Dave Eggers went to Gaza. And we basically said, look, we're going to show you what life is like under this occupation. And then you write whatever you want. We're not going to tell you what to write. You write whatever you want. And the essays are really amazing. Writers wrestling with this truly horrific, brutal regime, this oppressive regime. So like that question, are you a Zionist for me has, has always had these, since I was an adult, has had this like cascading ramifications. I mean, it's similar to the question, like, do you believe that Israel has a right to exist, which gets asked all the time. And I feel like I've only just been able to articulate a, a decent answer to that, which is to refuse to answer the question. Like if people ask me that now, what I say is that question is meaningless. There's 7 million Jewish Israelis. There's 7 million Palestinians, both in within the borders of Israel proper and in the occupied territories. No one is going anywhere. The only question is, is it possible for these two people to live in a kind of relatively peaceful coexistence with everybody having the right to self-determination and to live a peaceful life? 
Like, so that's a great answer to that question, right? But the Zionist question still, I almost feel like if I answer no, which probably is more accurate, is more accurate, then I'm betraying dad. And just to situate this, our father was born in 1925. He grew up in Montreal. He served in the Canadian Army during World War II, but he was very young and he didn't actually leave Canada. And then when 1948 rolls around and the Jewish state has been declared, he decides that he is going to get up and move to Israel and start a kibbutz. So our father... You can call him Leonard Waldman or you can call him Arya Ya'ari because he changed his name when he got to Israel. Which a lot of people did at the time. They would yeah, take on an Israeli name. name when they got there. Like you left behind your kind of your diaspora name, your kind of the the exile, the oppressed name, the scurrying Jew who had his nose in a book and you went to be this kind of this agrarian, uh, powerful, strong Jew. So dad, after... The war ended in um, 45. He organized a group of Canadians, young Canadians, and they moved to Israel as what's called a garin, a seed, a group of settlers, essentially, although probably would have been one of the words they used about themselves. And they actually founded a kibbutz, one of the kibbutzim that was destroyed on October 7th or, you know, invaded, burnt to the ground. Many people were killed there. But dad raised us in this in this atmosphere that's really common to many people who lived in Israel moved. Like, so what happened was our four siblings were born during that time that dad was living in Israel, three of them in Israel, one in Canada when they were um, in Canada for a brief period. And they all were born and raised on kibbutz, on Kisufim, and then eventually on a different kibbutz. And then he moved back to Canada after his divorce, met our mom, moved back to Israel where I was born, but she wouldn't go back to the kibbutz in the Negev. She didn't want to live that kind of socialist agrarian lifestyle. And our father was this Trotskyite, right? I mean, he believed that the fundamental way that you expressed your political, social, emotional value was in this communal existence. She did not. So eventually, after a couple of years in Jerusalem, they moved back to Canada and eventually to the States. So that's our family history, right? But like we were raised by him with this kind of ideal. After our father died in 2021, we found a whole bunch of letters that he wrote home in 1948. First, when he was on his way to Israel, then after he got there, when he was fighting in the War of Independence and founding a kibbutz. And we're going to be reading from some of those letters over the course of this episode. But let me introduce our guest. David Myers is a distinguished professor of history and Sadie and Ludwig Kahn Chair of Jewish History at UCLA, as well as the director of the Luskin Center for History and Policy. He is going to be here to help us understand our own history, our family history, our own changing feelings, and how we can put those things in context to understand them. And maybe, maybe you could start with you know, for someone like him, a 23-year-old young man who was becoming sort of energized by Zionism and socialism, would the Zionism that he was imbibing in living in Montreal in 19, but before 1948, did that have a particular kind of leftist, liberal, socialist cast to it? You know, would those things have been necessarily inter intertwined? What, do you, what kind of things would he have been hearing that led him down that road? Thank you for having me on the show. Would 
a social Zionism, social Zionists have been exposed to leftist liberal socialist currents um, in making his or her way to such a movement? Of course. And I, I think we want to take a step back and say that what your father was experiencing in Montreal in the 40s was uh, a movement that had been in existence for a half a century or so, since really the inception of the formal Zionist movement. So Theodor Herzl convenes the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. And next year, a guy named Nachman Sirkin writes an essay called uh, A Modification of Herzl's Essay, The Jewish State, The Socialist Jewish State. Oh, so from um, really way back in the beginning. Yeah. And the, the second Aliyah, the second wave of immigration to Palestine that begins in 1904, was the wave marked by socialist Zionists who were committed to the principle of what they called Dat Avodah, the religion of labor. So, you know, that kind of notion that you have that your labor Zionism was a religion was, in fact, explicitly and literally articulated by the founders of the socialist Zionist movement, who had this vision of creating not in the first instance, a state, but an egalitarian society informed by socialist values. And here they were trying really to square the circle of socialism and nationalism, two entities that seem to be completely antithetical in the late 19th century. Like you can't be a nationalist and a socialist. Well, this is exactly what um, the Austro-Marxist tradition attempted to pull off. And this was an idea that a socialist Zionist, and for that matter, Socialist Jewish nationalists whose vision of uh, realization was in the diaspora also tried to do to square that circle or thread the needle between socialist and nationalism to have uh, the best of both worlds. And I should say, in, in trying to understand your father and sort of those young people who made their way to Palestine in the early 20th century, I think we have to understand sort of the emotional or affective sensibilities. On one hand, they wanted to participate. This goes back, Ayala, to your question to Paul, are you an observer or a participant or, or mover, an agent? These are people who wanted to participate in the making of Jewish history, not to be passive objects, right? One of the first and most important texts to give uh, momentum to the movement that would become Zionism was uh, a book written in the early 1880s called Auto-Emancipation. Jews should stop waiting for European countries to emancipate them they should emancipate themselves. And that sensibility of taking hold of one's historical fate was integral to Zionism, to social Zionism, and I would say was a kind of intoxicant to people like your father. Do you want to read that that lot, that thing in the letter, Paul, that piece of the letter that seems to make that so explicit? We have a few of these letters that that we found. My father, I think it's important to understand he was kind of a budding journalist. He had written articles for some local papers in Montreal and the school paper and short stories that were in student publications. Uh, and so his letters home, which he copied, he wrote them by hand and then typed them out and kept copies. They're part just telling his parents and siblings what's going on and part sort of reportage. So this is one I'll read from August 20th, 1948. So the war is still going on at this point. He writes... My impressions change every day, but I never stop being impressed with the miracle of a nation being born. Whether one likes the product or not, it is the most one of the most amazing phenomena I think of this century or any century. It's the birth of a country to a handful of people in labor pains, and the midwife is Haganah, which is the army. 
It's fascinating. At the moment, mother and child both seem to be doing well. The infant is squalling lustily, and the cry is heard round the world. The world may not like the cry, but it can't help hearing it, and it can't deny that the country is now alive. Despite all British efforts to kill it, this country is more alive probably than any other in the world. It is almost impossible to believe the whole thing started in the mind of Herzl not many years ago. And then he goes on, I'm not a propagandist for Zionism. I may turn, even turn out to dislike the product of what I myself are laboring for. Just the same, I think there can be no better cause to give time and effort and money to. Not for what was imagined in Herzl's head, but for what was built by the hands of the Chalutzim, that's the pioneers, and for what is being defended and fortified by the children of the Chalutzim. Their effort here commands respect, and from American Jewry, it should command much more than respect. It should command from them financial and spiritual support. As you notice, I'm quite proud to be here. Even if I do not stay, I shall feel proud that I came. That sounds like exactly the feeling you're describing. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to just name the things that stand out to me, and then I'll elaborate on them. First is the idea of self-dignity, the idea that, that Zionism was a movement intended to bring dignity to a people that had fallen into a state of depredation. It was that precise act of, uh, of gaining control of one's historical fate that was itself an act of self-dignity. So that's really important. Second thing that's really important is, is the idea of coming al becoming awakened, coming alive. This is a standard feature of modern nationalist movements. Like there are very few nationalist movements that don't have the motif of, we were in a deep state of slumber and then we were awakened by this nationalist impulse. So this is very much part of what is so vitalizing about nationalism, that sense of being awakened from a state of torpor and developing into uh, something much greater than one could ever imagine. And that's what I think is hinted at at the beginning of the passage you read, Paul. There's a kind of sense of messianic mission um, that accompanies certainly the Zionist project and socialist Zionism in particular. And you might say, messianism is religious. Social Zionism is irreligious. Well, I think we have to really sort of rethink those categories because there's a very porous line between sort of the attempted sacredness of, of nationalist movements and what we think of as traditional religion. The language is often exactly the same, like the religion of labor. And I would say that what was part of your father's uh, state of mind was exactly what was part of David Ben-Gurion's state of mind, which is that the creation of this state is not only a miracle, it is propelling the Jewish people forward on a messianic journey. And so when we talk about messianism, you know, in the context of Zionism today, we have to remember there was a lot of messianism in 1948 amongst social Zionists. And you can certainly see that, I think, in the uh, way that he talks about the kibbutz, that is, it's almost religious. And, you know, even though uh, kibbutzniks were never more than a pretty small portion of the population, I guess my understanding is certainly that at the time, especially, they were thought of as this kind of almost an ideological vanguard, you know, that they were they were the truest Israelis. That's what I was taught growing up is that is that, yes, they were just this, you know, whatever, four or five percent of the population, but they were kind of the true embodiment of the Zionist project. And, you know, I have one other letter here that I can read here where he talks about that explicitly. This is 
just a couple of weeks after what the last one I read, where he writes, I love the life, country, Zionism, idealism, everything discounted, put aside. I love the life I have. I have found myself. There will be doubts and worries and difficulties, but always in my heart, I'll know that working and living for the kibbutz has brought me self-determination. I know what I want. And so this is the way he's talking about this, that this is sort of the truest expression of his own identity. And, you know, we, I know growing up, we were always taught that the kibbutz was the truest expression of Israeli identity. And, and the thing that we should aspire to also. There's something really important in attracting your father to this movement. It's not just the notion that I can participate in the making of history. It's also the rejection of a materialistic, individualistic mode of existence that the West represented. Um, this is something that you see amongst Eastern European Jews, and it makes its way to Canada and the United States as well. And it was a source of great attraction to young social scientists in movements like Habonim and Hashomer Atzeir. We reject that corrupt bourgeois existence to which our parents aspire, because they may not have really made it yet, but we see the trajectory, and this is not our path. We understand the importance of, uh, uh, of abjuring um, the acquisition of material possessions and this super individualist way of life. And the way to do that is by living in a socialist commune and working the soil of the ancestral homeland. There was something deeply religious about it and deeply sensual about that kind of uh, aspiration. Um, and I think that was another source of attraction, sort of the, the physicality of it, uh, you know, the surrendering of the cerebral in favor of the physical. Um, there's something empowering about it. There's something enormously sensual about it. And it filled people like your father with a real sense of mission. So, and I think also, you know, the stories. We talk over each other all the time and I win because I'm the older (laughs) sister. So shut up a second. We, you know, um, this makes me think of the language that we're hearing a lot of right now about sort of colonialism, like the colonial, it was, Israel was a colonial enterprise. When you're talking about that and the land and the importance of the land, is that something we see in other colonial, and those I'm putting that word in, in quotation marks, in, in other colonial endeavors, is that similar? Or is that different? Is that Does that make it distinct? Is that a way we should distinguish between this colonial enterprise and that one? That's a nice distinction to ponder. Um, I think so, because this colonial project, and it was unmistakably colonial and called itself colonial, project at hand was colonization of the land. That's the the Zionist's own self-definition. So there are ways in which there's a a colonial project and a settler colonial project in particular, and ways in which it is not. We can perhaps get to that point. But what was distinct about this instance was the sense of reclamation. We're reclaiming what was ours, or that is to say, our, our ancestors. This is an act of return to our own land. And that's something that is quite different from the Boers showing up in South Africa or even uh, religious dissidents showing up in what would become the United States. Uh, They came for their own sacred reasons and sort of wrapped their mission in a sense of sacredness. But there isn't that same sense of reclamation of literally the soil 
of the ancestral homeland that lends it that you know really central quality. So there is, I think, in the act of nationalism and and sort of self empowerment, there's a kind of very virile masculine form of sensuality. But th- mm. there's a really distinctive feature in the in Zionism in terms of working the soil with one's own hands. That sense of it being so physical and also kind of the material deprivation involved, that was a big part of the stories that we were told too. Ayelda and I both uh, spent a year in high school on a kibbutz uh, in the north, but it was a very well-established kibbutz at that time. And we did agricultural work, but people had real reasonably nice houses and things like that. But the stories that we were told about uh, our father's days on the kibbutz was that they were living in tents and clearing rocks from the fields. And this idea that it was so hard and so physical and so demanding, that was kind of part of the mythology of that, of that period as, as, we, as we were told the story. Yes, and the romance, definitely, as we were told it in our household. Probably the harder you worked, the more uh, a sense of authenticity you felt. And that's also connected to the act of reclamation. It's not just reclaiming land, it's kind of reclaiming an identity, claiming an identity as a new Jew, um, a new Jew with roots in antiquity, right? Back to a time when Jews were in control of their own fate, leaping over 2,000 years of subservient diaspora existence. So you're sort of reclaiming an identity. And the harder you worked, the more you likely felt you were realizing or fulfilling that mission. Um, And again, I think there was for that Garin in that time, just a sense of intoxication, not only at reclaiming the land, but reclaiming uh, the very mantle of Jewish sovereignty after 2000 years. You know, it's reflected in your father's letters, that sense of excitement and throwing off the yoke of British imperial rule. I want to talk for a second about the Holocaust and the role that played. Do you think there was a feeling of humiliation in the wake of the Holocaust, in addition to the trauma and the tragedy? I think there's a profound sense of shame today in Israel. I have to say it's really been on my mind a lot. I think part of understanding the Israeli response to October 7th is not only to grasp the enormous trauma and the way it was triggered, but also the sense of shame, the sense that that this is precisely what Zionism was created to prevent. So in the case of of the Holocaust, I think there was less a sense of shame and more sense of justification. Aha, this validates why we have chosen this path. You see what happened to those people. And you know it's a well-known story that Holocaust survivors, when they came to Israel, were often mocked, um, treated incredibly dismissively, and seen as representatives of the weak diaspora Jew who had been continually abused um, and then um, exterminated. So I think for many Zionists of this period, um, you know, there was this, this kind of schizophrenia underway, trying to pay heed and be emotionally attentive to what was going on in Europe and understanding this alternative path, the diametric opposite scene uh, of rebuilding and reclaiming and creating a new strong Jew with a hoe in one hand and a gun in the other. Um, And I think um, they did indeed interact with one another, but um, very much as a source for Zionists, as a source of justification and validation of the correctness of their path. 
you mentioned this about October 7th and the shame and the humiliation. Would you talk a little bit more about that? I've been doing Palestinian peace work. I know you have been doing peace and, and uh, um, coexistence work for a really long time. Just the fact that I have to say that before I talk about the nature of the atrocities, but could you talk a little bit about the relationship of, I mean, what we have now know about the specific nature of the atrocities, the sexualized humiliation and violence, and that feeling of shame and consummate rage? You know, I've been talking to Israeli friends, colleagues, observing, and to a certain extent, nothing that we see surprises me. Um, I wrote a piece in the LA Times on October 9th, probably somewhat foolishly, in which I really focused on what Benjamin Netanyahu said on October 7th, later in the day, that Israel will respond with mighty vengeance. And it seemed almost inescapable that that would be the motivating force. The, the kinds of forms of abuse and torture and sexual violence are committed by Hamas and other militants who cross the border really summoned up the image of the really classic massacre of Jews uh, that took the form of, or was called by the name pogrom, hapless and helpless Jews incapable of defending themselves from certainly the Middle Ages, but really developing that name in the late 19th century, um, after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in, in 1881, a wave of pogroms breaks out in Tsarist Russia directed against Jews because one of the members of the assassination team happened to be a Jew. And it's really in response to that wave of pogroms that we see not only the first efforts at Jewish self-defense, but the first aliyah, the first wave of immigration out of Russia when Russian Jews are beginning to say this is intolerable and we must take control of our own historical fate. So there are the, the images that we saw um, in the aftermath of October 7th not only hark back to the Holocaust, which they do, but even deeper into Jewish history, into the world of the pogrom, a world well before there was any powerful Jewish army. The acts committed triggered an enormous trauma that has largely been dormant, but has been activated um, on a number of occasions uh, over the last 75 years as well. Let's say it's always present just beneath the surface. Did you feel it yourself? I did. Yeah, I did feel it. I did feel it. And then you sort of jolt, are jolted back into the realization that the IDF is more powerful by order, you know, an order of magnitude of a thousand than Hamas. So you sort of to readjust uh, your sense of reality. But yeah, I mean, I think it'd be, it was very hard not to be brought back to that uh, that uh, earlier era. Well, this is, you know, this is one of the things I've been grappling with too, because, you know, that was always the justification for the state of Israel. Herzl writes about this too, basically that even if it looks like things are okay wherever Jews are, eventually they're going to come for us. And that was that's why we need the state of Israel. And that's something that I feel like Israelis never stopped telling diaspora Jews. But yet here we have a case where the worst atrocity since the Holocaust happens in Israel. And 
for all yep. its might, the IDF does not protect people. And therefore, enormous, still inarticulate shame. A hugely important factor. Great shame. It's not just that Jews were defenseless. Jews were defenseless in the most powerful state in the Middle East with one of the most powerful armies in the world. And there was just a complete and total failure. The day will come when uh, the psychologists and psychiatrists will fully assess the enormity of this collective trauma transmitted generationally, but also really pay heed to, to the sense of shame uh, that um, I think almost unavoidably um, has informed the response of Israel. We started off talking about this sort of early liberal vision of Zionism. And one of the things that I know a lot of liberal Jews like me have grown over the last few decades increasingly distressed at Israel's rightward turn, that it seems to just be a one-way ratchet. The country gets more conservative and more conservative. The Labor Party, uh, which controlled the country's politics for the first few decades of its existence, now has, I think, four seats in Knesset, which is nothing. And one of the questions I think that you know, liberal American Jews ask themselves is, how much connection can I continue to feel with this country if its politics are getting more right-wing all the time, and if this period is going to push it even further to the right? What is going to happen? How are my values being expressed there in a way that's beyond just they're Jews and I'm a Jew and we all need to be safe? And how can we square the abuse and the the horrors that go even before Gaza, even before this catastrophic, almost incomprehensible devastation of, you know, the things in the West Bank? You know, I always used to do this thing, David, where when kids would go on birthright, I would say, okay, but then you have to give me three days for Ayelet's birth wrong. And I would have them go to Hebron and I would have them spend some time in, you know, the village of Susia, which doesn't exist anymore. It was hard enough to square it before. I mean, I guess maybe why Paul and I are talking to you because we don't know how to square it. We don't know how to feel about this place that, I mean, I can't even talk about it without crying, about this place that was so important to our father and to us. You know, you transmitted that belief to us. I was going to make Ali. I did make Aliyah last about six months. And how do we square that with our our values, the things that we feel? Like, is there is there a way to do that now, given this and other? How do you do it? I don't. Um, I, I accept that um, there are certain propositions that are simply irreconcilable. Uh, I often say, Jews have rights, Palestinians have rights, but that doesn't mean they're reconcilable. Israel is, both at its best and its worst, uh, a picture of contradictions, of profound contradictions. There's so many extraordinary parts of Israeli society today. Some of the greatest people in the world, and my dearest friends, are there. I have such an unexpungible sense of connection to that place. It's so deep in my heart. It's hard to even give articulate expression to, but it tortures my soul from the moment I wake up in the morning until the moment that I go to bed at night, in part because that vision has gone so off the rails. Um, and talking about the pre-October 7th uh, Israel, it leads one to ponder whether sovereignty corrupts in ways that are 
not susceptible to correction. Um, and this is the question that I sit with every day. Was the very creation of the state of Israel as a Jewish state, as an essentially ethno-nationalist project, uh, destined to end up where it was today with Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir as leading members of government? And I don't have a clear answer to that. I mean, the question I ask is the counterfactual. What could have happened that would have assured that what we see today was not the path taken? It's important to note that our dear socialist Zionist comrades like Ben-Gurion wanted, certainly in 1948, a state with as much land and as few Arabs as possible. Um, and there was a very sizable monumental project of expulsion um, that also played an enormous role in creating the identity of the people with whom Jews have been locked in battle in that land for 75 years and longer. Um, and I should add that act of expulsion or catastrophe, the Nakba as it's known, bestowed upon the Palestinian people an enormous sense of collective trauma as well. And so one of the ways in which we have to regard the conflict is as a clash uh, between two monumentally large collective traumas. I mean, one indescribably larger, but the other also enormously powerful in shaping the sense of collective identity uh, of the Palestinians. What could have happened? What could have taken place? What could have been a course correction to assure that a Jewish state not culminate in Jewish supremacy? And the answers I can put forward are, they range from weak need to delusional. So the weak need one would be, well, if only Ben-Gurion agreed to put the word democracy in the Declaration of Independence, right? a word that he very deliberately struck from various formulations of it, including the final one. Maybe sort of enshrining democracy in the foundational document of that state might have made a difference. Maybe. I mean, there are many totalitarian regimes that call themselves democracies that, you know, indicating that the mere word doesn't mean that much. So I don't know about that. You know, there were many competing visions of Zionism. There are different versions of socialist Zionism. There were various forms of political Zionism. There was cultural Zionism. There was a small circle of spiritual Zionists, as they designated themselves, followers of the cultural Zionist Echadaam, Many of them came from Germany, um, saw themselves as leaving behind this foreign culture, um, which they were so deeply immersed in. They were students of Schiller and Goethe, much more than Talmud and Maimonides. But they saw something vitalizing in the return to Palestine. And they came, and precisely at a time that other Zionists were saying, I think we now understand that we not only need to focus our sights not just on creating an egalitarian society, but a state, and a state with a Jewish majority, which in the 20s seemed kind of fantastical, this small group of German Jewish spiritual activists understood the dynamics at play um, and said, hmm, maybe we need to create a single entity that recognized that there are two national cultures here. These were the binationalists of Brit Shalom. And these are the people who I think both saw something that is kind of ineradicable, like you have these two national cultures and sought 
to find ways for their peaceable coexistence. And in that aspiration, we're not hyper-realists, right? Because the culture of that time, the 1920s and 30s, was increasingly turning violent. The culture of political culture was increasingly turning violent. And it was increasingly becoming clear that while the British were trying to play referee, this was a clash between two peoples over control of the land. Well, you know, let me ask you about this this way. You know, one of the things I see when I look at the Israeli right today is this belief that is sometimes almost explicitly stated that if we just beat the Palestinians down enough and for long enough, eventually they will abandon their national aspirations. And we just have to keep pounding them and then we will prevail. But I look back and I wonder if even the leftists, labor Zionists of the country's founding certainly wouldn't have put it that way, but that was almost the implicit belief that, you know, the Palestinians were basically just an afterthought and we would set up this wonderful thing and, you know, whatever, something will happen to them, we'll kick some of them out, that they they didn't need to be considered because their national aspirations were not, it wasn't anything you were going to have to really worry about. And it seems like this enormous blind spot, not only practically, but morally as well. Like, is that what our father was thinking? Is that's what your father represented um, in his letters. Like there's a passage, I think it's his letter from August 8th, 1948, in which he sort of makes passing reference to the expulsion of the Jews, uh, of, the, of the Palestinian population from Haifa. So on April 21st, 22nd, 1948, the overwhelming majority of the Arab population of Haifa was removed from the city. Some were able to return and live in places other than their original homes, but the vast majority were not. Your father makes reference to this like almost incidentally. Um, so there was, I think, to your point, Paul, a real opacity on the part of many. But I think on other on the part of others, there was an intentionality. Like they understood exactly what was uh, going on, um, and they understood from their perspective what needed to happen. It's us or them. Those people who were making, who were in positions of power, were our beautiful socialist Zionists who had this vision of a socialist utopia on the kibbutz, they became the most intense nationalists and the ones who oversaw uh, the war of 1948 and the Nakba. So you have those for whom Arabs didn't exist and those for whom they were you know, front and center and reason to develop very clear policies to address the problem at hand. Well, maybe I could read from one more letter that my father wrote. This is October 29th, 1948. And he writes, This country has never really had peace. For thousands of years, every eastern power there was used Palestine as a battlefield. I've been on hills where the Judeans and Israelites of 2,000 years ago fought the Syrians and Assyrians. And I've seen dugouts that were hacked out by the Turks when they occupied Palestine more than a century ago. This country has seen so much bloodshed and its people have seen so much war that it should be the one country in the world to want and know what to do with peace. I think the peace isn't far off and I hope the country will know how to make use of it. The peaceful era that I hope is coming should be one of construction and progress and creativity. If it degenerates to an era of petty squabbles, then there are many of us that won't know what to do. Many of us have put our faith in Israel and if the country's people fail, then people like me will just feel bewildered and licked. 
I don't know where I'd live or what I'd do if Israel fell down and in, in its making of its peace. Try to resume life in another country, I guess, but I hope that our faith will be justified. And that is incredibly sad to me to read today. You know, our father, we started talking about feeling like you were, you're an actor in history. He was 23 years old at this point. You know, he lived another 72 years, but never felt that same kind of passion and the dream that he had, you know, the socialist dream and in some ways the Zionist dream, they both failed. But I would say what he may not have been aware of um, was that that failure in terms of uh, devoting oneself to the path of peace was already well underway in his time. Um, so not only were you know over 700,000 Palestinians expelled in the War of 1948, but then you had about 150,000 Palestinian Arabs who remained in the state of Israel, and they were placed under military rule. Um, so the very idea of equality of rights for all citizens wasn't really realized. Already then, there were structural problems. It was evident that there would be structural problems. I think what one might rest content with in thinking of the realization of Zionism is that the best that one might propose is that it was realized in 1948 with the creation of State of Israel, uh, which provided uh, not just a sense of uh, self-empowerment for Jews, but a place of refuge. And here, I think it's really important to note, uh, just to emphasize you know, the ways in which Zionism deviated from the path of peace, but it also was an ideology devoted to the principle of survival. And in that regard, it was a great success because it provided a place of refuge for Jews in need. I think that may be the best we can hope for at this point, not the vision of a socialist utopia, um, which to anyone who's spent time on a kibbutz or to anyone who's read Amos Oz's My Michael will readily recognize was an impossibility, like the, the pettiness of life on the kibbutz over the course of several generations it became made life really unbearable for, for many. But you know, I think we shouldn't leave without a sense of uh, the triumph of Zionism as an ideology of survival. Uh, alongside um, its failings in being a movement that could countenance the existence of another national group. I think we're going to end there. David, I want to thank you so much. This has been so interesting and enlightening, and it's been a great discussion. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Boundary Issues is produced and edited by Paul Waldman. Our music is by Zeke Shabon. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at waldmanpodcast at gmail.com. And this is a listener-supported podcast. So if you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash boundaryissues. See you next time.